Are you ready to know what you don't know about Privacy Pros? Then you're in the right place. Welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast by KZN Privacy Experts. The podcast to launch, progress and excel your career as a Privacy Pro. Hear about the latest news and developments in the world of privacy. Discover fascinating insights from leading global privacy professionals. And hear real stories and top tips from the people who've been where you want to get to. We're an official IAPP training partner. We've trained people in over 137 countries and counties. So, whether you're thinking about starting a career in data privacy, or you're an experienced professional, this is the podcast for you. and welcome to the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. My name is Jamila and I'm a data privacy analyst at Kazian Privacy Experts. I'm primarily responsible for conducting research on current and upcoming legislation, as well as any key developments and decisions by supervisory authorities. So we have a special episode for you on today's podcast. I'm interviewing our very own Jamal Ahmed. It's been six months since the Privacy Pros Academy was launched and six months since our podcasts have begun. So let's hear a bit more from our CEO, the man who needs no introduction, but I'm going to introduce him anyway. Jamal Ahmed is a Fellow of Information Privacy and CEO at Kazian Privacy Experts. Jamal is an established and comprehensively qualified privacy professional with a demonstrable track record solving enterprise-wide data privacy and data security challenges for SMEs through complex global organizations. He is a certified information privacy manager, certified information privacy professional, certified EU GDPR practitioner, Master NLP Practitioner, Prince2 Practitioner, and he holds a Bachelor of Arts in Business with Law. He is a revered global privacy thought leader, world-class trainer, and published author for publications such as Thomson Reuters, The Independent, Euronews, as well as numerous industry publications. Jamal makes regular appearances in the media, on television, radio, and in print, and has been dubbed the King of GDPR by the BBC. To date, he has provided privacy and GDPR compliance solutions to organizations across six continents and in 30 jurisdictions, helping to safeguard the personal data of over a billion data subjects worldwide. I always have to take a breath after that introduction. Thank you for being in the hot seat today, Jamal. Yes, thank you, Jamila. I mean, when you first sent me the notes for today's podcast, I was like, Jamila, who's the guest? (laughs) And then when you were like, no, you are the guest. Ah, okay. This will be interesting. Yeah. So you've helped me ask questions for the last six months. And now we're going to be asking you some questions. Are you ready? I am ready. Back in the hot seat again. I'm looking forward to this. Let's dive in. Well, as we always do on this podcast, we're going to start off with an icebreaker question. If you could have any other job, you can't have anything to do with data privacy. What would you do? If money was no object as well. If I could have any job in the world. Yeah. You know, I would probably work for a humanitarian charity. Nice. I would love to go to different places and help people in their local communities. And if people are suffering, I'd like to play a little part if I can to alleviate that. But more than that, what I would really love to do is to really help empower them. Sometimes people just need a helping hand. And if I can help, that would be amazing. I can't think of anything I'd love to do more. Oh, that's lovely. And humanitarian work, something that's close to your heart. I saw a picture over the weekend of you jumping out of a plane for charity. That's right. It's something that has been embedded in me from a very young age. I was in primary school. I think I was Mm -hmm. in year three. First started raising funds for charity. And that was to feed the birds in our school gardens. I raised some money. We got a bed feeder. We got a bed bath. And we joined the RSPB. From there on, I went on to some more walks for the WWF, the World Wildlife Federation. And as I've grown older, it's something that's been part of me for a long time. And in fact, last month, I was awarded for some of the humanitarian efforts, more the philanthropic efforts over the last year, helping lots of different causes. Something that is very close to my heart. It's also something that I feel is part of my giving back. And I think it's important not just to take what we can, but also to give back. There needs to be a balance. And when we give, it really feels good. I would encourage everyone to really go and give as much as you can, because when you give, it actually brings you more. Wow, you started early. For those of you who aren't in the UK, year three is around seven or eight years old. Very young when he started his humanitarian work. Something like that. And my age changes <laughs> every year. It's hard to keep up. <laughs> Let's get down to it. Let's talk about Jamal Ahmed behind the suit. 
Yeah, that sounds interesting. You raised money for a lot of animal charities and yet you don't even want your cats next to you. So when did that change? What happened? It's not that I don't want my cats next to me. It's that the bloody fur gets annoying when they start shedding. You can get hairless cats. I think Rahena doesn't need anymore. (laughs) So you started your humanitarian work seven, eight years old. What did you do after then? Secondary school? Were you involved in many charitable causes? I was always involved in lots of charitable causes. And I think one of the things I remember about secondary school was raising money to go on this 10-mile walk for WWF. I think we went to the forest and it was really nice. And we managed to raise a lot of money. I think we raised that money for some animals that were on the verge of extinction to raise some awareness of that animal at that time. Animals are something that has been always been very close to my heart. I know what you're going to say, Jamila. (laughs) Why am I always complaining about my wife's cats? Well, yeah, they are close to my heart, but that doesn't mean I want them close to my heart physically. And we can see it there, you call them your wife's cats and not your cats. <laughs> yeah, you can see I'm distancing myself away from them. <laughs> so after secondary school, what about college, sixth form university? I would say around that time, I was really, really more interested in the environment and animals. And I was a huge campaigner against deforestation. As I started learning more about what's happening around the globe, humanitarian causes, mm-hmm. international causes, people suffering, being oppressed, discriminated against, people mm-hmm. who are victimized, those things started really hurting me. That's when I decided, you know, I need to do my bit. I can't control governments. What I can do is to make an impact. That more recently, I would say in the last five, six years, I've had mm-hmm. some amazing campaigns. One of the campaigns that was very close to me was following the Syrian war. So a lot of people were displaced one evening. I was watching TV with one of my close friends. There was people going through Macedonia. I'm sure you remember those harrowing images. And he was like, I wish I was a millionaire so I could help these people. Yeah. I remember turning around to him and saying, you don't need to be a millionaire to help them. Why don't we do what we can? Put a message out there to all our friends and family. And Mm -hmm. we said, hey, we're going to be in Asda car park this Sunday. Come and give whatever you want and wake it to France. We'll go to Calais because there was a lot of Syrian refugees, not just from Syria, but from lots of different parts of the world. And they were camping there. So it was like, we'll take food out there. So Mm -hmm. we ended up in Asda car park on a Sunday morning. People are very generous. This is the thing that never ceases to amaze me, how generous people are. So people started coming, giving cash. Some people were giving pasta, rice, all sorts of non-perishable food, toiletries. You name me, people were giving so much that in the end we got a second van out because it was just too much stuff for one van. So all praise to God, we managed to fill up two vans. And now we've got on the ferry. We're on our way to Calais. We get to the jungle and it's really heartbreaking. Yeah. See the amount of people. This was around winter time. So you can imagine how cold and miserable it was. It was difficult distributing the stuff because people are hungry people are desperate they don't want to wait in an orderly fashion to receive it they just want to grab what they can because they are fearful that they're going to miss out giving these things out was difficult enough as it is once we'd achieved that i remember on the way back i was feeling really miserable i was thinking you know i'd be feeling good about myself like we've done a great thing we collected so much stuff we went and gave it out and i remember feeling really miserable on the way back i felt so bad i know i'm going home to a warm bed these people i've left behind it's really difficult And one of the things that really stood out for me was after we'd given out two vans worth of food, one guy came to me and said, do you have any food? Felt so bad. I came back and I was like, look, we're going to do something about this. Got together with some of my friends and we decided to do a project. We call this the Enable 1000 project. And the idea is that we was going to build a kitchen, a communal Mm -hmm. kitchen, where actually the refugees can now cook So you know those gas burners with the stove so that they can actually start cooking there so they can have warm food, they can have warm drinks, they can maintain them. So now we're going to give them the cooker and the gas and everything to go with it. Then they're going to say to me, Jamal, I don't have any pots and pans. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to add pots and pans to the kit. There was this like camping set, added some plates to the kit. And then I was like, hang on a minute, this isn't working. I went and spoke to my mom and my wife and my dad. So together they came up with a list of things. Uh, We designed a communal kitchen and each kitchen is designed to serve 10 families. Amazing. The idea was that we put together a hundred kitchens, cater for a thousand people. It was amazing. And you can see some of this work on on Facebook and YouTube because we were making lots of campaign videos. We got those hundred kits together and this time it felt really good. My wife came with me, my sister came with me, my close friends came with me, my brother-in-law came with me. We went back out to the jungle. We really uh, made an impact this time. We yeah. was able to not only give food, but we was also able to empower them in a way where they could actually mm-hmm. look after themselves now, where they could have hot meals. And one of the most beautiful things was that whole weekend, wherever I was going, people, children, women, men would come and grab me and take me to their camp yeah. to join them with the food that they'd made using the equipment that we gave them. 
And it was like such a rewarding experience. And uh, it, it was an amazing project. I can see what you said about giving them the tools and the equipment definitely would empower them. And also it means that they can make things from where they're from and from their own cultures, which I guess would make them feel a little bit more at home. I mean, they're in the worst of conditions. So any kind of little glimmer of something that can make them feel a little bit happy would be amazing. It's amazing. Yeah. I'll share the photos with you one day, but some of those pictures, the smiles that I remember, it makes everything worth it. Just one or two of those smiles when you look back and see those kids happy because they suddenly got warm food it was amazing yeah pretty soon after that there was lots of people i think it was in the mediterranean trying to cross yeah. over and then get onto the greek islands I remember seeing some of these things and some people actually reached out to me people i've never met they reached out to me on linkedin and facebook and said hey we can see all this amazing work you've done in the past what are we going to do about this and i was like what would you like to do about it <laughs> Let, let's do something this time we managed to get two whole shipping containers worth of clothes shoes boots waterproof materials we sent them out to the Greek islands of Lesvos and Hios. Mm -hmm. And it was actually the first British delegation to send any kind of aid to the island of Hios. And we dispatched a team there to help people, dragging them out of the river and taking them to the actual camp where they had to get registered, giving them a fresh change of clothes, giving them hot meals. Yeah, It was really amazing. This project was actually amazing. So we thought we've helped people fleeing from Syria. We've helped people from all parts of the world in the jungle. You have people from Iraq, you have people from Eritrea. And we managed to help all of these people. We managed to help people that are fleeing persecution, war, and we managed to really make sure that they don't get hypothermia and stuff when they're coming on. As you know, one of the things I observe as part of my faith is Ramadan. And Ramadan is a time of month when you have a meal in the morning and then you fast from sunrise till sunset and then you break your fast with some nice food, hopefully. And I remember we, uh, I saw some footage about children in Syria and they was asking if they don't have anything to start their fast with, and they don't have anything to break their fast with, would God still accept their fast? And for me, that was, was just too much to even hear that question. You know, really wanted to do something about that. So I said, okay, look, what we're going to do is we are going to make some food parcels and we're going to send them out there so people at least have something to break their fast with. Mm -hmm. And the idea was that we would put some parcels together. Inside those parcels, it would be enough to provide for a few meals for people. Inside, you had some oil, you had a tuna, you had some salt, you had other non-perishable food. We put some toothbrushes, some hygiene kits. So I can't remember the list off the top of my head now, but each parcel was like a box of a shoe size. And yeah. the idea was that it would look after two to three people. The whole campaign was called Ifta 1000. This campaign really resonated with people. Instead of being able to put together enough for a thousand parcels, we managed to get enough parcels together to help more than 10,000 people. We wow. were sending container after container after container of these goods because it was fascinating. Wow. That's how generous people were. The most beautiful thing about this project was how it brought the community together. Yeah. Because putting 10,000 parcels together, it takes a lot of logistics and it needs a lot of manpower. And we had to do that over one weekend because it's not like I own a factory or a warehouse. So we spoke to a church based in Poplar and Sister Christine. Christine there was really lovely. So she said, you can use my church for the weekend. And over that 48 hours, it was crazy because we had to arrange delivery of pallets and pallets of stuff from all of the different suppliers. Yeah. And everything had to come at the same time, but not at the same time so that there was no jam yeah. just in time. And then all of these things had to be unloaded off the trucks and then into the church. And then once they're in the church, they had to be packed into the boxes. And we had to do a quality check to make sure all of the boxes were the same, had everything in it, nothing yeah. too much, nothing too less. And then we had to get all of these boxes wrapped up and then back onto the shipping containers. Wow. So the logistics behind that was amazing. <laughs> I just remember I took a second and I took back and I was just looking and everything was just buzzing. Everything was just working as it was meant to be. And here I am managing a team of volunteers. No one does this for a living. I'm just watching the way everything was flowing it was so beautiful. And the best thing was when these boxes actually got into Syria and then they started being distributed. So I don't know if you're familiar with Pokia Sharif. He was recently on the BBC talking mm -hmm. about the aid work that he was doing there recently. He actually went and distributed these things. And the most beautiful thing that he did was he actually distributed these things in the schools. So he went to the schools and he was giving the little children the packages to take home. And he's made a video of these little children running around and so happy with all this stuff they got. Mm. And the other thing that we did is we wanted to show our human side. Every box has a handwritten note from yeah. our volunteers. Oh, that's lovely. And when you watch the video, in fact, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put the link into the video in the podcast so anyone that's interested can watch it. And you can see him holding it up. By coincidence, the box that he opens happens to have 
the message that Rehenna, my wife, put together. So Aww. on the camera, you can see he's got it up and you can see Rehenna's name on there. And I was like, how random is that? How of the thousands of boxes, the one he yeah. picked happens to have her message in it. So it just was so rewarding and so touching for us to see the efforts of everything that we put in finally be materialized over there and in the hands of the people who it was intended for. And how did she feel? I think her heart melted <laughs> because she got really emotional. That was really beautiful. That's amazing. And it just shows what the power of people coming together, what they can achieve. Absolutely. And then after that, we had a few more campaigns and my family, my friends, we went on a bit of a campaign. Bangladesh gets flooded quite a lot. As you know, my parents are from Bangladesh. They were showing me all of these images. Do you think there's anything you could do or anyone can do to help? And that's when we launched the Rice for Life campaign. Rice is a staple food for people in Bangladesh especially in the district where they've been flooded. A lot of their trade is actually on rice. So they have the paddy fields where they grow the rice. And what they do is they barter that rice for other things. Other good services, they would actually barter the rice. That's what they trade with. And when the flood came and destroyed their crop, it didn't just mean that they'd have no means of feeding themselves but it means they actually have no means of acquiring anything else because yeah, they have no currency. wiped out. We managed the Rice for Life campaign. And that's where you see where I jumped out of a plane and I encouraged friends and family and anyone crazy enough to know where to jump out of a plane to raise some funds. And it was amazing. We managed to over exceed on the targets that we had in place. Wow. And uh, we managed to distribute that rice out to all of the amazing people. I think we can take from what you've just told us. You've got an amazing heart. You're very persuasive, definitely, to get people jumping out of a plane. And I think you're very dedicated and you just want to do good in the world. I think being able to persuade and influence has really been instrumental, especially when it comes to giving back. Remember I told you about the Asda story? Yes. Asda car park? Yeah. When we first arrived at Asda car park, it was like, what are you doing? And we're like, oh, we're just collecting all this stuff. <laughs> like, you can't do that here. Why not? This is our car park. It's private property. We can't have people collecting here. You, you can't be doing this on our premises. It's just not acceptable. There's a policy. You need to go right to our head office. It needs to go through a proper formal policy. It's like, wow, this is not yeah. going to happen. So after a persuasive conversation with the key stakeholders in the ASDA, known locations mentioned, we was able to continue. Not only was we able to continue, but we was also then allowed to have presence at the entrance of their stores. We were able to talk about the other campaigns. So if people are coming in, we would explain what we're doing. And people are able to gift those kits. And for anyone who doesn't know, Asda is a supermarket in the UK. The American equivalent, I guess, is a Walmart. There you go. I think they're part of the Walmart family. Oh, they were acquired by two brothers based in the north of uh, England, haven't they? Yes. Blackburn, I believe. I knew it began with a B. (laughs) But there we are. With your hard work in humanitarian work, you've been very determined. And I think once you set your mind on something, it definitely happens, which leads me on nicely. Privacy Pros Academy, you were determined. It started six months ago. It's been a great success. Tell me about it. How's it been? It's been an amazing journey. Every day, regardless of how busy the day is, whatever's happening, a handful of people, never met me before, never seen me, never spoken to me, will send me a message and just saying how, how inspired they are or how much they love the podcasts or how much they love something that I've said somewhere yeah. and how much it's actually resonated with them. Some of them will say that how they've been following the advice and it's really got them to a place where they would never thought they would be in. And of course, the people that actually come and join the Privacy Pros Academy, seeing how life-changing and transformational it has been for them. So yeah. it's been a journey of a transformation and it's been super inspiring and super rewarding. And what made you set it up in the first place? The reason I set up uh, Privacy Pros Academy was one of the things that I used to be approached a lot of the time is people used to always ask me for advice mm-hmm. about how they can um, really have a data privacy career that thrives or how they can change a career and jump into privacy. I remember helping a number of people through the process informally. And it got to a stage where I was like, people are like, you need to do this. You need to come and give this advice to people. You need to help them. So I was like, all right, let's do it. I want to be the positive change. Yeah. And the thing that really pivoted it from becoming an addition to the consultancy to mm-hmm. actually setting up the whole Privacy Pros Academy and really having a separate focus on it was at the end of December 20. 20, I remember I was invited to a PrivSec event and I was asked to talk about increasing diversity in privacy. Yeah. My journey in privacy has been anything but easy. It's no secret. It is challenging for people of color in this society, in this country. And we can see that from some of the comments that we're seeing about the English footballers who have a different skin color. And that's what's been highlighted and people making some really hurtful comments about them. And it's not just in football. That does happen in privacy. And it's not something that people talk about. 
Yeah. But I have experienced it and I wanted to do something about it. And I was like, we're going to disrupt the industry and we're going to make a change. Yeah. And when someone tells me, no, you can't, or because of this, or tries to make me feel bad about something I have no control over, then that really drives me to do something. There was a particular story you might have heard I talk about in one of my podcasts. When um, I remember in my early career, I remember arriving at an event data privacy event and I remember a middle-aged middle-class lawyer looking down at me and he thought I was actually part of the catering team and he handed me his coat and from that point I was like I'm going to come back and I'm going to show you guys that this is not acceptable I'm not just going to do this I'm going to bring as many people as I can from a diversity and inclusive point of view mm-hmm. and we're really going to take over the privacy sector by storm and so the academy was really the avenue or the vehicle for that so mm-hmm. the whole purpose of the academy is to inspire people to transform their lives for the better, to have thriving careers, but also to be a platform for people of diverse and inclusive background to really get into a sector which might otherwise not have been very open to them. And the cohort we've seen so far, pretty diverse. We've got a few women that have come through. I think everyone's been a person of colour that's come through. And what kind of results have they seen and have you seen with them? Well, during the academy, we don't really monitor what their background is or what their ethnicities are, but some of these things are self-evident. But yes, we've had people of colour and we've had people of (laughs) non-colour and everybody's welcome. And uh, we've had some amazing people. And you're right, most of our clients, uh, most of our mentees through the academy, see a higher percentage of females or people who identify as females coming through. And it's actually been really positive. It's been really empowering. And and we've had people like um, Zainab. I mean, you can listen to her story on one of the podcast episodes. She's come in. Uh, she was in a point in her life where she was really stuck and frustrated and she could see no way out. And she knew she had so much more to offer and so much more to give. She was just stuck in a supermarket in a retail role. She joined the academy and within six months, she's transformed her life. And now she's got the career of a dream. She's doubled her salary and she is having amazing results. Just like Fayaz, they was on the same cohort together. And I think Fayaz's podcast went out previously to this one. Yes, it was last week. So you can hear his story about how he changed career from a not-for-profit sector and how he's really pivoted his career and making the most of the opportunities of data to privacy and everything they have to offer through the academy. And then uh, we've had so many other people who have joined and they're taking on the IAPP certifications. For anyone who still hasn't acquired the IAPP certification, listen guys, if you're serious about a career in data privacy, the way employers and hiring managers are looking at it is it's almost a prerequisite for 80% of businesses, for 80% of the jobs out there that you have a IAPP certification on your CV. Usually you'd expect to start off with a certified information privacy professional over Europe. And it's not just about reading the book, learning how to pass an exam and acquire that. When you actually speak to hiring managers, especially if you're trying to change career, they want to know that you actually know what you're talking about. They want to know that you're confident. And therefore, the only way and what you really want and what you need is to attend training with a mentor, whether that's through the Privacy Pros Academy or that's through somebody else. It doesn't matter. The most mm. important thing is that you find a mentor, somebody who is an expert on data privacy, somebody who is a thought leader, somebody who actually is passionate about what they do, because it's really upsetting the amount of people who come actually are really upset. They're like, look, Jamal, I've invested in the training um, with company XYZ. We had the training. It was so boring. Someone came and spoke at me for two days. They had no interest in the subject. Other people will say, hey, I went with a massive training company problem was that they're just trained trainers yeah. they don't actually know what they're talking about they don't couldn't answer any of my questions they don't practice privacy others will be like we had the training by some lawyers they don't know what it's actually like to operationalize these things they're just talking about it from a legal point of view and theoretical point of view so what i would encourage everyone listening to do is to really think wisely about the choices that they make and if they're going to invest in themselves what is the best value you're going to get for your investment go with someone who's going to give you the best return on the investment and i'd love to position ourselves as the people who are best placed to do that And the reason I say that is, number one, all of our trainers, including myself, we're so passionate about data privacy and we really want you to get it. We don't want you to just get it from here, but we want you to own it from your heart. We want you to be just as passionate about data privacy as we are. And I only work with individuals who come onto the academy who are just as passionate about data privacy as I am. And everyone that you will meet in the academy, they would have had at least a decade's worth of experience in industry. So they would understand all of the ins and outs, the nitty gritty. And of course, the credibility and the authority that we have is second to none. You will not find another single trainer out there who has been approached by half as many of the media outlets as we have. You won't find another trainer out there who has been published in some of the high profile places where we've had articles. And I know if it was me making a decision between if I'm going to spend X amount, I can either do that here and I get X, Y, Z, or I can do it over here where I get 
XYZ plus all this extra stuff. And the other thing that we do at the Privacy Pros Academy that no one does and no one will do is we give you a supportive environment. So the challenge I find some people is they'll go to a two-day training and it's very transactional. It's like they're on a conveyor, but they go to a two-day training, somebody delivers a training to them, two days later they're out and they're left on their own. Yeah. The difference with us is when you join the Privacy Pros Academy, even if you just come for the two-day training, you actually get embedded as part of our wider community in our environment. And you are there now and you are part of the community. We were there. We will support you. We have question and answer follow-ups. We have a private Facebook group for people just like you. So even if you attended the training, let's say six months ago, but for whatever reason you were unable to sit your exam or you have to revise and now you have questions, you have a strong community of people who are where you are, ahead of where you are and behind you. You have privacy professionals there from all over the world we will actually answer those questions for you. And if you still haven't got an answer, every Friday I come and I do a live Q&A session. So any questions that people have, it's answered. And we really hold your hand through the whole process, not just for those two days, but from before those two days, during those two days and after. So you are never left on your own. And that, I believe, is the difference that makes a difference. One thing I think I really rate about your approach to the Privacy Pros Academy is when someone approaches you and says, you know, I'm really interested, I want to join. You don't say, okay, great, let me take your money and let's get you started. You say, think about it, make sure that we are the right fit for you as well as you being the right fit for us. You really care about people's progress individually and care about what's right for them, not just, oh, let's make some money from you attending. Yeah, it's no secret. Privacy pays really well. And um, I'm grateful to God that we have a very successful consultancy. So the Privacy Pros Academy is not about making money. Privacy Pros Academy is more about delivering on our passions. And if we're going to deliver on our passions, we're going to be very selective with the people who we work with. So you have to be a right fit for the program. We don't want your money. We don't need your money. It's not about us. It's about you. We will still be in the same jobs we're in. We will still be in the same houses we're in. We'll still be driving the same car we'll be driving, regardless of whether someone comes to the academy or not, right? Yeah. So the academy is not about us. It's really about the individual. It's really about you. And what we want to make sure is that when you come and join the academy, that not only are we the right fit for you, but you are the right fit for us. You have the right mindset. You have the right set of values. And you actually are looking to develop a passion where you want a meaningful career where you're going to go out and make an impact in the world. And we only want to work with really driven, ambitious and motivated people. So when they go out and people ask them, who did you train with? And they mentioned the Privacy Pros Academy. It yeah. reflects on us. And we want to get to a stage where eventually, where any employer anywhere in the world, when they think about data privacy training or they think about recruitment, they want people who have gone through the academy. Yeah. So that's the vision. That's where we're trying to get to. And that's why we have to be very selective with who we let into the academy. Yeah. And it's also important that we don't just take advantage of people's situations. So some people will be in a situation where they're actually very stuck, they're very frustrated, and they might just think that they can throw money and it might solve them. And I've come across too many people who have spent too much money on different courses, and six months later, they end up in the same situation, right? Mm -hmm. I want to make sure that anyone that joins the academy does not fit into that subject. I want to make sure that this is the right decision for them. And that's why we give you so many resources when you first approach us to really help you to make your mind. And it's only after you're convinced that this is right for you and we believe yeah. that you're the right fit for us, we'll say we welcome you on board. And it's something that I've seen is the support that you give during the programme. It's not just, and we've said this before, it's not just teaching to pass an exam. You give people the mindset classes and you give them opportunities to shine I guess is the best word on webinars, putting them forward for different things where they can showcase themselves and all the skills that they've acquired. And it really shows that it's, it's about them and about bringing that next cohort of data privacy professionals into the sector. Yeah, absolutely. So now you're moving on to our secret uh, formula. So over, over the years, uh, we've cracked, we've unlocked the formula to really make it as a privacy pro in yeah. data privacy. And we have a five-step formula that anyone that joins the Privacy Pros Accelerator program, 12-week program, we really take them through all five steps. And this is where those five steps come in. So the first step or the first pillar uh, to success is mindset. And in a previous life, one of the things I was was a life coach. 
I'm a master NLP practitioner. I think you read that out as part of my introduction. Yeah, and I think it comes through sometimes in team meetings where I've, sometimes I've, I go in and I'm like, oh, and then I feel like after I've had a team meeting, I feel, yes, I'm ready to go. That's ready it, to write some it. articles. It's all about how we influence uh, our choices and our options to really make sure that we have the most. I meet a lot of people who come into the academy and they're really actually broken, have a lot of self-limiting decisions. Somebody's told them they're not good enough or they believe they're not good enough. And there's all sorts of questions about their confidence. And so the first thing we do is we strip away all of those false beliefs. We strip away all of those self-limiting decisions and we really give them the mindset of an empowered privacy professional. And one of the sessions that we have is we talk about focus, we talk about setting goals, we look at their values because a lot of people don't know that the human mind processes 2 million bits of information at any given time. And if your brain was to process all 2 million bits, you would actually have a nervous breakdown. So what we do is we delete, distort and generalize that information using our internal filters. So you can have two people that would go and watch the same movie. And when they come out of the movie, they would have two completely different experiences of the mm -hmm. same movie. Your experience of the movie and your friend's experience will be completely different. That's based on your internal filters. So people have internal filters. And sometimes those internal filters were decided when we were children. Our subconscious mm -hmm. mind must have decided those a long time ago. And depending on what those internal filters are saying could actually be really harming your chances of making the most of the opportunities presented to you. So one of the things we do is we do a little deep dive into your mindset. We address those filters and then we decide to empower them. And we have all of these techniques in the academy. I'm not going to go into that here. Uh, it's for people who join the program, but we really make the most of that. And I've had a lot of people who actually say, this mindset stuff is not what I signed up for. But the moment yeah. we started going through it, I felt like I had my money's worth already. And the mindset stuff is the stuff we do in the first two, three sessions, right? So people are like, you know, I don't need the program anymore. I've yeah. got my money's worth. The rest of it is a bonus. It is the difference that makes a difference for them. What we'll do, we'll start sharing some of the testimonials, some of the experiences that people are having. So people can see some of the results you can achieve from this mindset stuff. Do you think people are a bit reluctant with the mindset stuff to begin with? Oh, absolutely not. Absolutely not. No? Now, remember, by the time people sign up to the program, yeah. they've been exposed to a lot of what we do. Yeah. And we would have had a very in-depth roadmap to success strategy call. Yeah. And in that call is when we see where they are now and get, yeah. get to where they want to be. And then if they're the right fit, I'll explain the program to them. Yeah. And I explain these five steps. And if these five steps are the bridge from where they are to where they want to get to, then I'll make them an offer to join the program. That's it. So I explain the steps. And then if they believe that these are the right steps for them, they're like, yes, I'm in. And that's it. Yeah. So step number one is the mindset. Step number two is all about the subject matter expertise. Mm -hmm. Right. So people can learn to read a book, but you can't learn karate by reading a book. You have to go in the, yeah. you have to go and spar with people, right? You can't learn to swim by reading the manual. You've got to go in the pool and you've got to take your hands off the edge. It's like I remember the early days of computers, I'm old, and you, you could go into WH Smith and you'd see like, read a book on Excel and you'd be reading it. You'd look at it and think, was that really going to teach me? But going onto Excel, now there, that might teach me. There you go. And then not only going onto Excel, but actually having someone who's a master at Excel who can show you this is what yeah. you need to do and guide you through the steps will actually get you to a level of competence a lot quicker. Yeah, definitely. And so that, that's pretty much what we do. So the second step is all about subject matter expertise. And we have a series of uh, masterclasses on all of the key topics in data privacy. Mm -hmm. There's 12 different masterclasses that we have. And the idea is that these masterclasses are designed to empower people. So by the time they finish each masterclass and they're ready to move on to the next topic, they are a subject matter expert. They have mm -hmm. breadth and depth of understanding in that subject area. And they should be able to go on and have a conversation with any of their peers and they should know what they're talking about. And they should be confident and own that they own the subject matter. So that's the second step. And then we have the third step, which is credibility, certification, right? So it's no good me and you in the academy knowing you know this stuff. The world needs to know it too. How, how do we do that? So we have to look for a global certification. We have to look for a certification that is recognized worldwide and one that actually employers want. Mm -hmm. That's when we put them through the official IAPP certification programs. So we put them through the two-day intensive. And some people just join the academy just for that two-day program. Yeah, And that's absolutely fine as well. Not everyone needs to go on the accelerator program and not everyone can make that investment. So everyone can start the journey wherever they are. And they can start the journey with the two-day intensive IAPP certification. So that really gives them the credibility. It's the gold standard, the benchmark that you have the basic level of knowledge. Or you have a certain, uh, the gold standard 
you meet the benchmark of what an employer would expect you to know when it comes to data privacy. And we see people, lawyers, engineers, technicians, uh, operations, HR, so many people coming through just looking to achieve that certification to really unlock their careers so they can start having thriving careers, whether it's data privacy or whether it's addition to that. And increasingly, we've had a, a lot more people with a legal background. So even though they have the legal certifications, we're yeah. seeing an increased number of lawyers who are actually coming on board to do the certification programs with us, which shows that this is actually what the industry needs out there. And anyone that tells you otherwise is not in touch with the market. And all you need to do is don't take my word for it, but go on, go on Google, look for data protection jobs, look at the top 10 jobs, first 10 that come up. And out of 10, just notice how many of them say CIPP or CIPM, and you mm. can make that decision for yourself. So that's the third thing. So, and then we have two more. The next one is all about personal branding. It's all about personal branding. So this is where we take people from what they have right now and we have to re help them rebrand to be yeah. the best version of themselves. And this is where our team of career coaches will really work through really with you. And you're going to come up with a brand new CV. We're going to change and we're going to recreate your whole LinkedIn profile. And we don't leave anything to chance. Anything that an employer is likely to see, anything that's going to really help and support you, you go to our LinkedIn masterclass. You go through our recruitment process masterclasses. And by the end of that, you have a strong personal brand. And this is where we will do everything to leverage and pivot your actual credibility by putting in front of a TV station, putting in front of webinars, and really help you to deliver everything that you've discovered throughout the process. So you're in a position where you can give back. And remember when we spoke about charity and giving back? Yeah. The thing I love about this is now I've got a team of mentees and professionals who can actually hold webinars yeah or not-for-profit organizations and you can say hey guys we've got some great value to give you and guess what we can do it at no charge to you at all so it's amazing to be able to give back in that way and yeah. these individuals who have come through the program they actually love doing that as well and i think you spoke to Fayaz about this um in the last episode yeah um, and, I, and i've Zayn spoken to Zainab, but i think they really enjoyed it i think after the first one you know they were a bit nervous which i was too <laughs> but i think afterwards i think they I found it so beneficial and they just really liked the opportunity to give back. And I think it was just before Ramadan as well, the kind of time that we all kind of felt like we wanted to give back. And it was, I think it was a really quite a special webinar. So, and I remember we did a one earlier to that where we had Chloe and I think we had people from Kenya and South Africa and we had people from Malaysia. Yeah. So I remember we had a program yeah. people all across the world. And I remember Chloe from the Netherlands was on that one. Yep. And Chloe actually used the branding from that webinar and she put it in front of her employers at an interview and they snapped her up. Boom, that was it. Amazing. That single piece of personal branding made everything yep. worth it for her and they snapped her up. She's now uh, got the career of her dreams with a global multinational organization. She's loving every day of her job. So the personal branding really does help. And what's number five? Practical experience, right? But this is all great. You have the theory, you know what you're talking about, you have the certifications, uh, you have the personal branding, but people want to know that you actually can come into the organization and if they're going to pay you large sums of money, you actually know what to do. Do you know what it takes to respond to a subject access request? Yeah. Can you write privacy notices in a language that everyone can understand? Can you put together a record of processing activities? Do you know what it takes or what needs to go into a data protection impact assessment? And if you've never done any of these things, that's where everything can go wrong. So that is the final pillar, is the practical experience. So the thing we do on the accelerator program is we pick four of these key topics yeah. and we really uh, work through the individuals in a safe environment where they're allowed to make mistakes because that's how you learn. And they will shadow my team and we will give them some simulated exercises where they get an opportunity to actually learn these things, not by reading a book, coming to a, a class and learning about it, but by actually doing it. So sometimes they work with live clients, other times they'll shadow and they get a chance to have a go at doing these things. They get a chance to acquire those skills. And we only move on from one practical experience to the next one once both they and I are confident that they yeah. know how to do this. And when they say to me, Jamal, I'm either a 10 out of 10 or an 11 out of 10 on how to do a data protection impact assessment, I say, okay, now you're ready for the next one. Even though the program is designed to be 12 weeks long, we yeah. have a really powerful policy in the program is at the end of that 12 weeks, if you haven't achieved the five pillars and you're not where you need to get through, we'll work it with you. If yeah. you're having a really tough time with one of those elements, it's fine. That's what we're there to support you with. So we're not going to just kick you off the program at the end of the 12 weeks. We really work through it all with you. 
because we are invested and committed to your success. And mm-hmm. when you speak to the people on the program now, they will tell you just how committed and invested in their success we are. In fact, you should reach out to these guys and bring them on while they're through the program uh, rather than at the end of the program so we can learn about the experiences that people have while they're yeah. going through the program. That's a great idea. I'm going to note that one down now. We've heard a lot about the Privacy Pros Academy and I guess after the Privacy Pros Academy came the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. So why is my question? Why did you set it up? So the podcast is really our gift to the world. And the reason I say that is I get so many people uh, reaching out to me from all different parts of the world because they've seen me speak or they've come across an article or they've seen one of our YouTube videos where it's been talking on the news. And they say they're really interested in data privacy, but for whatever reasons or whatever financial constraints they have, they can't actually bring themselves to invest. And in other parts of the world, there isn't really anyone teaching or training these things in the local currency. So for them to be able to access really quality data privacy uh, training, data privacy yeah. education, they have to spend a lot of money. And when you convert their Nairas, when you convert uh, attackers, when you convert their um, rupees into pounds and dollars and euros, it really is beyond their reach. Like they would mm-hmm. have to work for like five, 10 years just to save up for a very basic course. So one of the things that they really um, get to benefit from is the podcast is, doesn't cost anybody any money. And we can bring on global experts from all over the world. They want to come and they want to give back. And everyone that you've seen on the podcast, or everyone that you've heard on the podcast, you see, we all have a very similar mindset. We're all invested in being the best version of ourselves. We're all very passionate about data privacy. Mm-hmm. And we're all inspired by helping others. And we really want to make this industry as great as it can be, not just here in the UK and in Europe and in the US, but globally. I've trained people in across 137 countries and counting now. And when we train people in some of these different um, jurisdictions, they're lucky because their employers often pay for the training. Yeah. What they say is, if we want to learn more about this stuff, we find it very difficult to find stuff. We can read about it, but it doesn't make any sense. We don't really get it. So the whole idea of the podcast is that these individuals can actually listen to privacy pros talking about some of these things and it really inspires them. So that's why it's a gift to the world. And the other thing is there are people sometimes who are a little bit stuck and they're they're on their journey and they're looking for that little bit of inspiration or that bit of wisdom or that pick me up. And a lot of people say like they tune in every week and this is they made it a routine to listen to the podcast every week. And it really helps them to get through the week and give them some great ideas and some inspiration. And it's really inspired a lot of people. And what, what I'm going to start doing is actually, if people give me permission, is I want to share some of the great messages that I get on a daily basis about how much people are really loving the podcast. Yeah. And I think uh, I've started sharing that in some of our team groups. And I can see how the team is actually saying, hang on a minute, this is actually making a difference. And yeah. I don't understand why I would decide not to share these messages before and keep it all to myself. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it was very selfish of me. I apologize. I, I just was like, why am I keeping these things? It makes me feel so good. I should share it with the team because it's a whole team effort. No, and so good. I started sharing some of those with yeah. the team. Uh, but I think it'd be good to really start sharing it with people. Here, here's the great thing is what I see a lot of mentees doing now. And not even mentees, just people uh, who are getting in touch with me. Is they've started creating LinkedIn posts about mm-hmm. each episode. And this is really fantastic because this is going to really help them with their personal branding. Imagine an employer or a recruiter that comes across your CV. The first thing they do quite often is look at your LinkedIn profile. Mm -hmm. When they go on your LinkedIn profile, if they can see that you're actually very passionate about data privacy, you're talking about privacy, and you're tagged to some key players in the industry, then they're more likely to favor your application over someone who can't demonstrate those things. And one of the things that I find a lot of mentees say is, I can't find my voice on LinkedIn. I'm happy to go and look at posts. I'm happy to like and comment on some posts, but I can't actually bring myself to write a post. So we make it easy for people. Okay, send me your key three takeaways from this podcast or from each episode. And they do. And I say, great. Now put the same thing on a LinkedIn post. Yeah, what a brilliant idea. (laughs) And it really helps them with their personal branding and it helps them to get the exposure. Some of the really smart ones, what they do is they'll tag the guest that's been on the podcast. Yeah. And the guest will often reply. But when the guest is tagged and it replies, guess what the LinkedIn algorithm does? It now increases their awareness to the experts and reach to all of the recruiter friends they have, to all of the hiring manager friends they have. And when an opportunity comes up, guess who is now on their radar? It works. I mean, this is one of the things people pay to learn on the program is Mm -hmm. how to really brand themselves on LinkedIn. And this podcast, we give so much free value away 
One of the problems sometimes of giving too much value away for free is when something's free, people don't actually value it. They don't listen to it. So I give lots of free advice to people, teach them the same things sometimes that I teach to some of my mentees. Now those people, because they haven't paid, they're like, oh yeah, okay. And they don't do anything <laughs> like it. Whereas the people that are on the program, because they've invested a significant amount of money, they actually do those things and they get yeah. the results. So you have to either pay with attention or you have to pay with pain. And most people, unfortunately, choose to pay with pain rather than pay with attention. But when you pay with attention, you get the results that you work for. Like the art of being successful and making it in the private sector, in fact, any sector, there isn't a lot to it when you break it down. It's those key five pillars. If you get those key five pillars right, we have a proven formula of showing you success after success after success yeah. after success. And we've actually brought people on this year who have gone through that journey. And they've spoken about their journey. But if you look back through Zainab's LinkedIn post, she took everyone on that journey with her. She was very open about the journey yeah. and was very open about all of the things that's happening. And you can see where she started, stuck in retail, earning the minimum wage, to now where she has a meaningful, challenging and highly rewarding career as a privacy professional. And that's in what, under? That's in less than 24 months. weeks. Yeah. Less than 24 weeks. Amazing. Yeah. Amazing. You can really like turn your life completely around, do a complete 180 in a matter Absolutely. of weeks. Key, yeah. The key takeaway from this segment of the podcast is when you listen to the episodes in the podcast, come up with three key takeaways. Write a LinkedIn post about your three key takeaways. Tag the guest. Tag the Privacy Pros Academy podcast. And really start working on your personal brand. It's as easy as that. And because you want to uh, really give back, what you should do is put a link to the podcast on your comments area so that other people who are intrigued can also benefit from it as well. And guess what they're going to think about when they listen to the podcast? Oh, I'm so grateful to that person for bringing this to my attention. And that's it. That's how we start. I'm excited to see what the takeaways will be from this podcast. Uh, we've got another section. So recently on our podcast, we've been allowing the guests to ask Jamal a question. So I've kind of turned the tables a little bit and I've been sneaking around asking members of our team what questions that they would like to ask Jamal. What have they Ooh. always wanted to know? So we've got some. They're very interesting. Some of them surprised me quite a lot. I thought people would be nosier, but we've got a very kind of professional team. So that's good. I don't know. I'd say I'm pretty open with the team. Anyway. Yeah, maybe I'm just nosy. Well, when I, when I hired you, I said, Jamila, tell me uh, one of your biggest qualities. And you said stalking people. <laughs> Do you remember? Did I? No. Uh, I don't remember anything pre-lockdown, so that's fine. Okay, so let's start off. Ananya, she is our queen of media. She would like to know, looking back on your career, what's the one thing you would have done differently? That is a powerful question. Looking back on my career, I think one thing I would have done differently is I would have created a lot more content on LinkedIn. I would have started talking and describing my journey and my challenges a lot more. Because one thing I find is the more we share, the more people are magnetically drawn and attracted to us. Mm -hmm. I remember like I worked on some amazing projects all over the world and it would have been great to share different cities, different areas, different teams, different experiences yeah. with my network on LinkedIn. So I think that's one thing that I would have done differently. Mike. Great advice. I think LinkedIn sometimes get a, gets a bit abandoned by some people. Next up, we have Sharan, your right hand man. He would like to know why were you so sure that data privacy was going to be such a big thing and it would work for you? Excellent question in two minds about how to answer it. So yeah. let me break it up. Why was I sure that data privacy is going to be a big thing? Yeah. And then why was I so sure that it would work out well for me? Mm -hmm. The first part of it is when I started looking into some of the changes that were going to be introduced, my first instinct was, ah, this is never going to happen. As if big tech companies are going to allow governments across the world to bring this stuff in. It's going to be dead in the water. But as it started building momentum, as it started building traction, I could see that this was going to be a massive game changer. Now, I remember telling so many of my friends and family, like, this is going to be a game changer. And people thought, like, oh, you're crazy. Like, they were like, oh, it's going to be like the year 2000 software. It's going to be year 2000. And then uh, a month later, you know, you're going to be looking for the next thing. Yeah. I was like, I don't believe that's going to be the case. I don't believe that's going to be the case. I believe this is the future. From everything that I've done and everything I've looked at, I'm very confident that data privacy is going to be a big thing. Because data is a massive thing. And we can already see attacks on infrastructure, data, data, uh, cyber attacks, right? And it's all to do with data. So I believed at the time data privacy was going to be massive. And I just knew this was the next big thing. 
and I wanted to be at the forefront of it when the, those changes happened. And it was it was a great decision for me, and I'm really grateful. Um, I was inspired to make that decision. How did I know it was going to work out well for me? The honest truth is, I didn't know it was going to work out for me. Yeah. But what I did know is, I wanted it to work for me, and I knew that I was dedicated and committed yeah. to doing whatever it took to make it. Yeah. And to this day, I'm still dedicated and committed to doing whatever I can to make it. If if you enjoy what you do, then you're never working a day in your life, right? So. I, yeah, I love yeah. what I do. I'm yeah. super passionate about upholding people's rights and civil liberties, as you can see from yeah. some of the work I've done outside of my professional work, that these things are very important to me. And so to protect and uphold people's civil liberties and people's human rights and get paid for it and get paid handsomely for it, it was a no-brainer. I just knew that this is what I wanted to do. I didn't think about how more great the reward was. I just knew this is what I want to do and I'm going to make it work for me. You're starting conversations about data privacy, you know, on a Sunday morning or at like two in the morning. I'm thinking, why is he not asleep? The passion is always there. You're very hardworking. So the next question comes from one of our new interns, Simran. And she asks, if you could go back to being our age, what would you do more or less of? And what would you advise your teenage self? I'm guessing Simran is a teenager. I'm going to pretend I'm a teenager for this one too, because she said our age. This question is a can of worms. So (laughs) anyone that knows me well will know that I was a very colourful and adventurous teenager. Is that the polite way of saying it? Colourful and adventurous? That is the acceptable way of saying it. (laughs) So what I would say is enjoy your teenagers, have as much fun as you can, so I would say as a teenager, the one thing that would have really helped me is somebody had sat me down and asked me where I want to be in one, three, five, ten, and 20 years time. Yeah. It would have been a massive game changer for me. I woke up each day, I lived each day, and I went to sleep and I waited for the next day. I didn't really have a direction or a plan. I knew I wanted to do something amazing and great. As a teenager, you feel invincible, right? You like uh, you feel bulletproof and you do some crazy things and you don't think about tomorrow and you don't think about risk and you don't think anything silly is going to happen to you. That, that's all okay. You have, you have to remember that you have a purpose in life. Yeah. And if you think about what is my purpose in life and you start thinking about those things and you start putting a plan or some kind of a vision or an idea about where you want to be. And I'm not saying map your life out as a teenager. Live your life, enjoy your life make sure that whatever you do is in line with your values and your principles. But what I would say is one thing I would advise as a teenager is have a plan of where you want to be in one year from now, actually regardless of if you're a teenager or not, whatever area of your life you're in now, it doesn't matter. Think about where you want to be six months from now, one year from now, three years from now, five years from now, and 10 years from now. If you, if you have a really good idea of where you want to be 10 years from now, Break that down and work backwards and see what you need to do each year to make sure that you're on track for that thing to happen in 10 years time. And one thing people underestimate is what they can achieve in one year. And they always overestimate what they can achieve in one week. And when they don't achieve what they can in that week, they get really demotivated. Or what they can achieve in that month, they get really demotivated. But what they And because of that, they always underestimate what they can achieve in a year. So I always say start off with an annual goal. And break that down and say, what do I need to achieve each quarter to be on track for our annual goals? Take that approach to everything. I think that's really great advice. And at the moment, I'm volunteering with young people. I think I told you, teenagers, I'm a little bit stuck sometimes about how to help them and what to say to them. I think that's really great advice, especially the six months and a year and even three years, I think 10 years they might look at me and think, well, I've no idea. <laughs> but definitely breaking it down into what they need to do in the next six months, what they need to do in the next year. And a lot of them, I think, don't really know what they want to do. And I think when we can start putting things down on paper and putting ideas down, I think we get really successful teenagers. This is a challenge. Like I find people go running in circles because they don't know which direction they should be moving in. But as long as they know that going in that direction, then at least they will have some idea and some reasoning behind some of the moves they're making. Mm. I make sure that anyone that comes and joins the previous Project Academy has actually thought about what they want to do and yeah. it's the right fit for them, which is one of the reasons why we kind of send them away if it's not clear that they actually know where they're going. Uh, because that's the last thing we want them to do is to waste uh, money, waste time, waste energy, going around in circles, ending back where they are. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay, so next question from... Aman, he wants to know, what do you do outside data privacy? Ooh. Is there anything apart from, you know, stare at your cats? 
giving them dirty looks for getting fur on your suit. So I spoke in length about some of the charitable stuff that I do outside of data privacy. So one of the things I really love to do is go out and try different types of food and different cuisine. It's it's something that my wife and I actually look forward to. So once a week, we try to go out and try uh, a different kind of food or try food that we really like. And this weekend, we actually went to a Korean barbecue and vegan restaurant in uh, Barbican. It's the central. It's central, central London, yeah. And it was amazing. Uh, I had some amazing food there. And um, I probably enjoy my food a little bit too much, man. I'm starting to think about some uh, more healthier choices. And I'm trying to introduce some lifestyle changes because I spend a lot of time on my desk all day. And it's important to actually make sure that we get up and we exercise. And and, and the other thing I'm really starting to enjoy doing is actually taking walks. So I'm trying to make it a point of going for a walk every day uh, just to get that mental well-being and that balance and just yeah. become away from the stresses of the desk the way I found to do it is if I've got like if I have to go to like the post office and Sainsbury's and do something else whereas before I'd do it all in one day and I'd just go out and get everything done now I make them individual things each day so I'll be like oh Monday I'm going to the post office Tuesday I feel a bit like an elderly person just trying to get out and about but (laughs) it works it's an excuse to get out and go for a walk yeah but do you need an excuse to get out and go for a walk or can you not just do that for yourself? Sometimes, especially if it's raining. Well, there's Uber Eats for that. <laughs> other other delivery services are available. Yes, that was not an endorsement of any kind. <laughs> right, we're nearly there with the questions. Uh, another one of our interns, Shashank, asked, uh, can data protection or data privacy be embedded on blockchain network? Will it be safe, like in a decentralized network without access to third parties? So Shashank, whenever we're talking about any kind of blockchain network or anything, data privacy is to do with personal data for the purposes of what we're talking about here. So if there's personal data as part of that blockchain network, then one of the things that they would have to think about to be compliant with uh, data privacy laws is the principle of data privacy by design and default. So when they're designing these blockchain networks, when they're designing the processes, they would have had to think about personal data and how that's going to be part of the process. And what somebody sensible should have done is a data protection impact assessment, identified the risks to personal data, and then found ways of mitigating against those. So I hope that answers your question. Another question uh, we've had in before my question, is from Samuel. And he says, what legal basis will governments rely on to process data subjects IMEI without their knowledge? Ooh, so this is a really interesting question. I think what Samuel is trying to get to is about how the government can actually conduct surveillance on its subjects or on its citizens uh, without their knowledge. So the challenge here is, Samuel, is even with privacy legislation, there are certain exemptions for matters of national security and in the public interest. And the government doesn't actually have to rely on a legal basis for that. They can rely on an exemption to mean that they're allowed to do what they want to do when it comes to surveillance. So unfortunately, I don't have an an answer for you. It really depends on what it is that government is trying to achieve. If they can rely on an exemption, then the the outside of the scope of data privacy legislation for the respective jurisdiction. But where they are in scope and there is no exception, then of course they have to rely on one of the lawful bases available to them. And most likely it'd be for public interests. Uh, But it depends on which jurisdiction you're in and which part of the world you're in, and what's available to them at that time. What's IMEI? The IMEI number. He's talking about, you know when you get a mobile phone? Yeah. Or you have a SIM card? You have an IMEI number attached to that? So that's basically, it's a unique identifier. Okay. So it's kind of like when you're talking about public interest. I remember we had this conversation after the uh, Matt Hancock picture got published and I said why are they publishing it isn't it illegal because it's in his workplace it's a bit weird and you were like no public interest but there we go yeah correct under UK law there is an exemption for anything that's for journalistic purposes uh, that's in the public interest and um, one of the exemptions available to newspapers is if there is a story in the public interest they can rely on that um, journalistic exemption and that's what they did with Matt Hancock and you can see that actually was in the public interest he is a minister he is stopping people from seeing their dying relatives. And at the same time, he's floundering the rules that he's imposing on other people. And yeah. it's unacceptable to have one rule for ministers and another rule for the citizens. 
um, everyone has to live by the same rules. Definitely. Okay. And last but not least, a question from me. I think I normally ask you them anyway. I'll probably just send you a text. Why isn't Santa Claus adhering to GDPR with his naughty and nice list? But that is to a, a later webinar slash podcast. So my question is, six months of podcasts, six months of me talking, what's been your favourite moment? I think the favourite moment are the ones that don't actually make uh, the episodes, <laughs> the bloopers in between. They are, they are, um, yeah. And I think today's bloopers have been especially good and I, I think maybe you know we're gonna have to release an episode with just bloopers uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll get people to vote to see if they're interested in that so my favorite uh, moments from the episodes are definitely the bloopers uh, where we have a nice laugh as, as you guys know like we don't always like to be serious we like to have a lot of fun at the privacy pros academy and the more fun we have i believe the more happier everyone is so the <laughs> bits that stand out for me is when we're all having fun and when we're laughing in fact i love it when we laugh so much that we will have a they will have breathing problems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, there's definitely uh, a lot of laughter today. I've thoroughly enjoyed this pod, but that wow. goes to show you time flies when you're having fun, which is exactly what we just said. Um, so thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Jamal, for letting me delve deeper into what drives you and getting to know a little bit more about you. So, Jamal, if anyone's listening to the podcast and they want to know the next steps, what should they do? Listen to a couple of our podcasts and have a little think about whether you feel like you'd be a great fit for us. You can reach me on my LinkedIn and just drop me a message and then we can take it from there. And if you'd love to have me as a mentor, I'd definitely love to have you as a mentee. And let's let's transform your lives. Let's get you that thriving career. Definitely. Definitely. And what a great note to end on. Thank you. Uh, Time flies when you're having fun, as we just said. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much, Jamila. I I love our podcast. Even though we didn't have a guest today, it was really good. It was very fun. See you on the next one. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, like and share so you're notified when a new episode is released. Remember to join the Privacy Pros Academy Facebook group where we answer your questions. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you're leaving with some great things that will add value on your journey as a world-class privacy pro. Please leave us a four or five-star review. And if you'd like to appear on a future episode of our podcast or have a suggestion for a topic you'd like to hear more about, please send an email to team at kzient.co.uk. Until next time, peace be with you.